Hello, welcome to those coming in. We are still awaiting our guest. So if you give us a few minutes, we will start shortly. Thank you so much for your patience. And now is your opportunity to go and get your tea or your coffee for the afternoon while we uh, wait to get things started. Hi, Mr. Kiernan, you're here, great. We are live, so uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and launch into it. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much everyone for waiting so patiently. So good afternoon, uh, my name is Maria Resina. I'm a librarian at the Eleanor London Code St. Luke Public Library here in Montreal, and with our very first virtual author talk of 2024. Our guest today is critically acclaimed novelist, Stephen P. Kiernan, author of The Baker's Secret, Universe of Two, The Hummingbird, The Curiosity, as well as nonfiction books, Authentic Patriotism and Last Rites. Today, he is here to discuss his most recent book, The Glass Chateau. I have my paperback copy here. Um, first, I'd like to go ahead and thank the team at HarperCollins Canada, especially Cindy Ma, for connecting us with Mr. Kiernan, as well as for sending me my copy. The library copy is out, but you can of course put your name on it. I also want to thank our local uh, partner here, Paragraph Books, independent bookstore. Please support your independent bookstores and buy the book there. I also want to thank the programming department here at Côte Luke Library, Daniel Belanger and Angela, who's in the background. If you have tech issues today, if you cannot hear me, please contact Angela and she will work with you to make your Zoom work. Now, please join me in welcoming Mr. Stephen Kiernan. I just wanna jump right into things with the book. Um, I'm gonna get you to unmute yourself first and to say hi. <laughs> hi, I thought I was unmuted, but hello, nice to be with you. Welcome, welcome. So <clears throat> I wanna jump right in. Um, I want to really talk about the book. So my first question today is specifically about the setting. 
So post-war France, a country reeling from World War II, what drew you to this time to write about? Well, well the first thing is that I had um, I had set the, the Baker Secret, uh, I don't know, six years ago, six and a half years ago, that novel came out. And I had set that one in France and really loved the research and um, and the whole experience of it. And so, so I was already open to these ideas. So where this started, I guess, first is, <clears throat> I want to say it was 2015 or 16 or so when I came up to Montreal to the Museum of Fine Arts because they had a retrospective on the work of Marc Chagall. So I live in I live in Vermont, and so it's a pretty short trip for me up to Montreal. And I didn't know much about Marc Chagall's work, and I was really blown away. And I'll remember forever, for example, the uh, there's a there was a theater costume that he designed. And if you the actor were standing this way, he was a fish and he had scales and all of that. And if he turned this way, it was a person. And it was just this genius in it, but it was also playful. And so I really liked it. So um, that's all I was just thinking about that. And then um, that just was a memory. And then when I sat down in um, January of 2021 and I had delivered a different a, a book to my editor. Um, so I have sort of like, OK, what's the next idea? I was thinking, what kind of a book would people want to be reading in 2023? And I felt like when I had when I was asking this question, we were sort of emerging from the pandemic and we were beginning a kind of a reckoning of the political situation here in the States and um, and seeing that that was happening, not just in our country, that the sort of authoritarian governments were rising in other places and that that was a real struggle in the cultures. So I was thinking about a rebuilding story, a, a healing story. And so I looked at history and where there would, were good large scale healing efforts and rebuilding efforts in American history. And they weren't, they weren't plentiful, let's just say. Like the reconstruction after the Civil War, the job was about one third done and then interrupted and never completed. And, um, and so, so then I was remembering that, um, that when I was doing the research for the Baker Secret, um, I'd been looking at pictures of France during World War II and all the destroyed buildings and the destroyed cathedrals. And when I went and visited there to do the research for the book, uh, they were all beautifully repaired. And it was almost like, well, just business as usual. This has been incredibly rebuilt and magnificently. So I thought, well, maybe there is a story. And then I found out, so I, so I didn't know much about stained glass or that period of time. I'm doing my usual research. And I found out that Marc Chagall had made stained glass. And then I started looking at a lot of his stuff, which was really remarkable and uh, fanciful and also full of heart, had a kind of innocence and playfulness along with some anguish. And then I found out that his windows really emerged after World War II. And I found out that he was for a long time concealing his background, which was that he was a, a Jewish man from a shtetl in Belarus. And, you know, his first language was likely Yiddish and everyone was Hasidic in his community. And the community was destroyed. There were about 120,000 people that lived in that region and 20,000 in his town. And at the end of the war, there were 118 people still there. So all the others were either slaughtered or fled. And he was in the fleeing department. Anyway, the fact that he can, that just made him that much more interesting to me. And so then, um, and then I began the research into stained glass and I realized that it takes a lot of people 
because it's a lot of different skills. And I felt like, okay, this has all the makings of a rebuilding and recovery story. As long as everyone is damaged and not everyone gets better um, because that's sort of how the rebuilding has happened. And so that's how, that's how this book came to exist. Um, was was through Marc Chagall and the Museum of Fine Arts in Montreal. So it all stems from Montreal. It always does. It does. So, <laughs> so tell me about the research. So you were studying stained glass. I just watched the Netflix series Blown Away. I didn't know anything oh, about stained cool, glass either. Oh, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. It's incredible. Cool. So yeah. tell us about that. Well, I guess there were a couple of kinds of, of, um, of research. One was the book research, uh, you know, looking at stained glass, learning about stained glass. I interviewed a lot of people. I ended up spending a lot of time kind of at the elbow of a guy here in Vermont who makes beautiful windows, watching him assemble them. And as soon as he like found out what I was up to, he's quite a, he's quite a curmudgeon, great old curmudgeon. And he was full of like, well, I just want to make sure you don't screw up. So let me see what you got. Oh, you got this so wrong. He was great. Very, very helpful. Lovely guy. And the other is that there's a uh, there's an atelier here that makes um, that makes glass. Uh, you know, they make like wine glasses and scotch glasses and pitchers and vases and things like that. But they also, when I was there, were doing um, were making the glass components of the next uh, sculpture by Maya Lin, the who is the designer of the Vietnam War Memorial, among other things. And so, so they also do art there. And um, and you know, and and I think like. I think there's sort of a spectrum of weirdness among art forms. Like I think that writers are fairly normal, mostly, you know, maybe well, talk too much. Pretend, you know, writers yes, pretend exactly. to be normal. Yes. And then I think that like, and then you could say like, well, even like novelists are here and then, you know, if this is normal and then like poets are a little over here, playwrights a little more over and then, you know, the screenwriters are really getting out there now. And then, you know, there's like, there's actors, right. And there's, I don't know, painters, and then there's people who work in glass, and they're much weirder, I think, as a as well, a core. They're willing to be injured for their work, like physically well, injured. There, that's yeah. I think about like for me, the biggest risk I face all day is that my battery's going to run out on my laptop. You know, whereas Paper they cut, all have like know? stars on their body and stuff. Anyway, um, so they watched this kind of preppy guy taking notes for a while, and they were like, "Enough of that!" And they took the. Um, they took my notepad away. They made me put my pen away, you know, get down in my T-shirt. And then they had me blowing glass. And and I was, uh, to say it with great pride, I was naturally terrible at it. I was incredibly pathetic at it. And they'd sit there and they'd go, this guy is just, he's pathetic. Like they were all laughing and stuff. And I was really bad at blowing. And um, it's, it's kind of a cool, it's a very cool art form because, of course, the glass is still is very hot. It's still quite a liquid, even though it's clear. And so you have to keep the pole turning all the time or it will droop on the end and be like, and I was a drooper. So um, so after I'd failed at that for a while, for redemption, they had me do a tiny bit of sculpting and make a glass flower. And so in fact, I had so much fun making the glass flower that I put a glass flower in the novel and it's a represent, it's a metaphor for a certain kind of love. A certain kind of yes, an unf partly fulfilled, partly requited love, and I liked it enough that at the end of the book, instead of having the end, I had a drawing of a glass flower in a vase. Which, in the context of the characters, that would be like a little maybe she will remember me one day. I mean, hang on one second. Uh, I went back and I ended up making a bunch of um, a bunch of glass flowers. 
and this is what they look like. Oh, and wow. um, and it takes about 15 or 20 seconds to make because then you can't really make a stem, on, on, you know, unless it's still hot. And, and you, um, you can't like pull a leaf out. Like you literally no, have to. Exactly. You just got to get it right or it goes back in the cauldron. And um, and so when I was on tour, I would give out a glass flower at each event. And um, and it is uh, I have experienced that kind of love that is in the uh, that is in the novel. And so I have this. Kind of on my on my shelf there. Um, it's the ephemeral sort of time limited yes. sort of love. Exactly right. Because of the circumstances, it can't be under the way. And you know, you could that could happen if you're 16 years old and you're at summer camp, and you you know have a crush on somebody, and then August comes and you go home and back to 10th grade or whatever, you know. But you have that little you know there's there's a certain wistfulness to it. So um, so in all, I really. Uh, think if I were only weirder, I'd, I would give up writing and, and become a glass artist, but I think I'm just a little too normal. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to, to jump off from that, so clearly there's a lot of inspiration from your experiences in your lead protagonist, but also, of course, uh, you're talking about Mark Chagall and his experience. So Asher uh, goes and learns how to blow glass. So tell us how Asher came to you as a character, how you chose him. You have a whole cast of characters and they, they all play an important role, but, you know, we open with Asher and he's got two other characters with him, Eli and um, uh, it's Ellie and I've forgotten the other one's name. I have it written down, but, uh, but you've chose Asher as your main character. So tell us about him. How did he come to you fully formed or is he, is he a little bit you, a little bit Mark Chagall? He is, he is, um, Zero percent me in terms of my conscious mind, but he's probably very much like me in terms of my unconscious mind, which is just how it works with characters. You think like, oh, there's none of this at all. And like my sons or my siblings read it. They're like, it was like you the whole time. So it's hard to know. Um, well, it's like he, being a resistance is, fighter, I guess. You're not you're not that. Yes. yes. I have so far no assassinations to my credit uh, or, or that, uh, debit, um, that you will admit um, on air. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that the um do you have a like a legal background with the question? No. Um now here's the uh the truth is that every character emerges, for me at least, emerges as I'm doing the writing. So I have an idea, and then the character gets in situations and does things, and I learn that that like he's driving the story, or that that if I'm gonna be true to who his character is, he has to behave in certain ways. And sometimes that can be really difficult. Um for example, you know, Asher, he he did he he's a Jewish man who saw his family killed and during the war and then became an assassin for the resistance. And he did 19 um 19 assassinations, uh, one of which was unintended. And these are not like rifle from 200 yard assassinations. They're very retail, as I say. It's like his hands on their throat kind of thing. And he has nightmares about it. He has he's very much traumatized by the war experience. And I wanted him in some ways to be an emblematic character. When I started out with this book, I thought it might just be a fairy tale. The idea that men could be damaged by war and kind of be wandering the earth, lost souls, and then find one another. And through the construction of art, through the healing power of art, begin to rebuild themselves and perhaps have an idea about how to heal a nation. That's like big concept to start with. But what happens is you get a guy who's walking down the road and he's hungry. And he's sad. And so there are ways he's going to behave that may not fit with the plan. 
of the book. And, you know, the more, the more I write, the more I want to take the author's hand out of the story and let the characters go as they will. So, so, um, so that's how it was with Asher. And he turned out to be more damaged than I thought. And he turned out to be more heartbroken than I thought. And, and then when the prospect of love came forward, I think he went and he fell in a way that I might fall. And, and it was hard for him to acknowledge that it was not going to work. And um, he has very vivid nightmares, which the reader eventually learns about. And I didn't know when I started with him dreaming about the burning man, I didn't know why there was a burning man in his sleep. That was just a thing that emerged. And so, so sometimes you have to trust, I'll say this, and I don't mean to be all woo woo about it, but it's like this when I'm writing, I'm really, in addition to being an act of imagination, it's also uh, an act of concentration. This is this this is who the character is. This is what he's like, how he speaks, how he behaves, his history. This is the weather. This is the clothes he's wearing that day. This is, is he hungry or thirsty or tired or whatever, you know, and, and all those things. And all the time I'm concentrating so hard while I'm writing and my conscious mind is working as hard as it can. And when I get to the end of the book, I go back, the first draft, I go back and look and it turns out my subconscious mind has been working every bit as hard that whole time and is putting threads in there and metaphors in there that I, don't, I literally don't know where they came from. And they're always better. They're always more interesting, they're more surprising. And so then I begin to take my literal story out and in the revision, now let that come forward. And so you have a guy who's having nightmares of a man on fire. And it turns out it's for a pretty horrific reason. You have a man who won't tell people his name. We never learn his name, but we know why he is so ashamed of himself that he will not say his name. And and so those things, I, I, I can't say that I sit down and go, oh, I know. It's much more like it emerges or there's a moment of difficulty. I'll give one more example if I can, kind of a long answer to your question. But it's this, there's a scene in which a character named Bondurant and Asher are about to fight. And, and there are a bunch of people standing by and none of them know that he was an assassin. Maybe Marie does, but nobody knows. And so, well, this other guy is kind of bigger than him and he's getting ready to brawl. Um, Asher has already said, you know, I'm going to throw a hat in the air and he's going to look up, look up in the air. And while he's looking in the air, I'm going to take this crowbar and I'm going to plunge it through his throat. It is clear that that's what he will do and he'll kill him. Only I don't want him to kill him. And I don't want him to, um, to, sh to show everyone that he has that in him. He's trying so hard to heal. I don't, and I don't know what's going to happen. So I do what I think a lot of novelists do when you sort of paint yourself in a corner. I, I close the file and I check my email. <laughs> and uh, and at the time I was in France, I was in Eastern France and uh, to do research there um, at the cathedral that had Marc Chagall's windows. And my marketing director had sent me an email and she said, hey, uh, you know, I, I like the pictures you've been taking of this trip. Be sure to shoot lots of video. And I thought, I haven't shot one second of video and I'm taking a train out of here tomorrow morning. And, and so I go hurrying. It's about a 40 minute walk to the cathedral from where I was staying and uh, no taxi or Uber out there. So it's just like I walk <clears throat> and I knew they it was uh, late October and they do daylight savings earlier than we do on this continent. So it's dark early and I'm just like trying to get there before and it's kind of raining out. So I know it's not, there's not gonna be video of light streaming through the windows or any of that. And I get there and as soon as I walk inside the cathedral where I've basically been hanging out for the last four or five days, it's completely changed. 
It's um, it's uh, the lighting is totally different. Instead of the big lights, it's uh, it's 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 vit, uh, what you kind of call vigil lights down the sides and that kind of thing. This building is 200 yards long, 160 foot ceiling. They started the construction in 818. Okay, it's like it took 500 years to build. It's been rebuilt twice after wars. Like it's a it's a classic, gigantic European cathedral. And I come back from the sort of entry area into the main nave, and there are there are 60 children in a children's choir practicing. And it's absolutely goosebumps for me. In fact, I kind of wept. It was so beautiful. And it turns out this is one of those European cities that has an incredible choir. And these kids are singing and they're amazing. And apparently they do, these, these parents are explaining to me, in the, they do a Christmas pageant uh, with the adult choir. And this is the first rehearsal of the two together. So now there's 30 adults and 60 kids singing together with this incredibly impassioned woman conducting them at the front. And it's just like, oh, no. you know, and I took some video and I sent it to my marketing director. I texted it to her. And like a minute later, she texts me back and she's like, I'm crying at my desk. It was really, really powerful and so great. And I took lots of video. And until the kids were aware of me, we're sort of hamming it up for the guy shooting the video. And then because kids are kids the world over. And then I went and got some dinner and I walked back to my hotel and I opened up my laptop and I had that these two men are about to fight. And then somebody says, what's that sound? And they go inside the cathedral and there are 12 kids or 10 kids. I forget. And it's the first rehearsal of the first choir after the end of the war. And so unlike any other book I've written, this one, things got handed to me along the way. And something as sublime as that children's choir, I could go, this is a gift. And it's a double gift because I can also put it in the book. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's that's start talking about it. I was like, oh, it's the scene from the book. It's there. There it is. <laughs> yes, exactly. You recognize it. Yeah. So uh, you're talking about a lot of things like emerging and sort of coming together. So this found family at the Chateau Girin, um, did they all come together as like a package deal in your mind as well? Did they emerge individually? You were like getting to know them through Asher. Did they come independently alone? Oh, that's a great question. So yeah, there are there. I think there are there are seven people or six people that are named at that. And I originally wrote it that there were more than twenty. And so um, like pair them down. So Marc, Brigitte, Henri, Etienne, Simon, and the Nameless Men. I guess is that it. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And uh, yes, you say Henri. That's right. That's the gang. And so. Um, so uh and then Can't fact, forget, so so I, I cleared out you know like 17 of them and then i needed simon um because i needed i needed somebody who was deeply who was outspoken in his religiousness and um and his faith um who also was a drunkard and that just that solved a lot of problems for me and um and it made another reason for asher to conceal himself not only is he hiding the fact that he's jewish but he's hiding the fact that he was a member of the resistance. And so here is this man is trying to heal from these really difficult things. Um, and yet he can't all the way heal because he can't be real, his true self. And um, I think that that is a common human experience that we show part of ourselves and that we are guarded about our vulnerabilities as everyone is. And his case just happens to be more extreme. And so, uh, so I think that I felt like readers would identify and empathize with this character and he would come to life for them. And, you know, the whole trick, the whole goal is for people to stop seeing, you know, black hieroglyphs on a white background and forget they're even holding a book. And um, 
and just have a dream happening in their own mind that they're a film that they're making with their own imagination. Galway Canal, the poet, said the book is only half the translation is only half the transaction. The other half is in the imagination of the reader. And so I wanted there to be more opportunity for that. And so it was really about paring it down. Otherwise, I spent all my time moving crowds around at meals and around the different machines and, you know, the different kilns. It was just, it was better to simplify it and then say, what do I really need? And and that turned out to be, yes, this cast. Mm. And Brigitte had to keep making more and more food if you had a huge cast and it's just so much more complicated, right? Yes. You know, I have some friends who are playwrights and they really talk about the goal of writing a two or three person uh, show because you have to pay every actor, of course. And if you write something that's got 20 people in it, you have to pay 20 actors. So they're, they're always trying to say, do I need this character? Is there some way that I can do it? And, um, you know, uh, I have some fun with the role of dogs in this book that saves me some characters. And I have some characters that come and go. And um, uh, yes, I have animals serve as characters often in the in the Baker's Secret. There are two. There's a rooster and a horse, both of whom represent quite a lot, even though they don't have many lines in the play. Here you've got a, a little political figure with Pitai the, the donkey, I guess. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised how few people got that joke, <laughs> but that's okay. I guess people aren't that, that up to date on French history. Um, Yes, yeah, so he was the president of the Vichy government who sent about 70,000 Jews to their death, um, believing that that also saved perhaps hundreds of thousands of French lives. Kind of debatable thing, but certainly was sympathetic to Nazi causes. He was sentenced to death and for treason and then found, I guess they, that was changed because he was old to a life sentence. And he lived with severe dementia and sort of never knew uh, what became of him and lived to be 91. Um Still a controversial figure in some ways in France. Um, and interesting and that, that Marie uh, sort of insists that she just, it's just the name of a donkey. It's just, it's just my donkey's yes. name. Don't, don't ask yes. questions. Yes. And if your dog was named Trump in America, you know, you could say, it's just the name of a dog. It's just, just I'm it not was cute. say anything about it. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't he just look like a little cutie Trump? <laughs> like a little Trumpy. That's it. <laughs> yes. And, and no one would believe you, but that's, that's what Marie does. Cause she doesn't mind starting a little fire herself. So speaking of Marie, I do want to ask about the women. We have, I guess, three and and the daughters. So Aube, Brigitte, Marie, three women in the novel, um, yes. all playing very different roles. Uh, do you, I guess they sort of act as very contrasting characters to one another. Uh, do you want to talk about sort of where inspiration comes for them, or they also sort of emerged as they were for the roles that they had to play in the story? Well, the first thing I'll say is that... Um, uh, what is unique uh, about this book is it's uh, of of my novels is the four prior novels are all uh, either narrated by women or stories about women. The women are the center of all of my prior novels. So the first thing is they started out so male, and I was like, we got to populate this place because it's it's not the real world, and also. You know, we've had 5,000 years of examination of the various modes of male heroism. There's still a lot of literature still to be written about female heroism, which is why those prior four books really were about were about the women and, in fact, were narrated by them. Um, and so in this case, um, uh, I knew that there would be a beautiful woman that would catch Asher's eye. Um I didn't know that she had suffered in many of the ways that he had. Um, 
I knew that there would be a, a woman who was uh, really kind of the heart and soul of the the of Chateau Garin and um, and the atelier, and that she would be kind of the mother to them all, but also have kind of a flirtatious relationship with them. And she's very saucy right to the end. And um, uh, so she she particularly surprised me because she was savvy in ways. I didn't know. And so like in revision, I made her savvier. She would say like, before you do that, let me just suggest you wait a moment. And the character would say, no, I'm going to rush right in. And she would, of course, be right. And so I, I, one of the things I love is to have, uh, you know, it's the classic Cassandra, but I like to have kind of a wise, quieter character who's always right and rarely listened to. And, um, and, uh, and I also like her freedom and her kind of sauciness. It felt very French to me. And um, uh, and um, I think that that uh, Asher's wife and daughter we don't get to know very well, just a little, uh, through through some very tender memory. Um, you know, one day when when his house is quiet, when she's in there with the baby, and he comes rushing in, thinking something has happened, and all that's happened is mother and daughter have fallen asleep after nursing, and it's incredibly tender, and. Um, uh, and that was pre-war, that little anecdote. And that's 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 like he's surprised by love. And um, I think that's I like that. So um they they were like their purpose I knew ahead of time, but their personalities emerged over time. And uh and one of the things that helped with Brigitte's sauciness was to have a character who was infatuated with her. And then it made, made me begin to think of her as having a sexuality and what would it be like. And it's hot in the kiln. Is she going to stay buttoned up all the time and that kind of thing? And so that was, it, again, it was sort of a minor character, but his conduct made me realize there was more to her. He saw more in her than I did. So he guided me. He wanted to see more of her, in fact. <laughs> yes, that's but, right. Uh, so maybe we can talk about them. So Pascal and, and Euclid, when I was reading it, when they first came up, I thought they were sort of like uh, waiting for Godot Beckett type yes, characters. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> it was, I thought it was just, you know, going a little French on this. Um, yeah. So tell me about them. Like they're, they're a lot of fun and okay, they, they so put know, a lot of humor into it. Yes. I had a ton of fun with them. So I'll tell you the, the sort of the fun part and the dark part. And the fun part is, you know, Euclid and Pascal were, you know, great French mathematicians and philosophers, right? When you were in ninth or 10th grade, you took geometry to learn about like, you know, I don't know the things of triangles and angles. That's all Euclidean geometry that was all the mathematics of euclid and so on so uh so to me it was um again there was a time when i thought i was writing a fairy tale and so i like the idea of these men who are straight out of godot in some ways you know but they're introduced when we're introduced to them they're under a bridge just like a fairy tale troll you know <laughs> and they're gigantic and very strong they just happen to have the maturity of about a 15 year old and uh, even though they have this immense strength and their faces are all broken up and distorted, probably from fights during the war and so on. And uh, I have a lot of fun with them and um, uh, and their casualness about their strength and ability to kill and and that they would do something really dumb, like take iron bars and throw them off of the, the cliff next to the chateau just to hear them go clanging in the road down below with no thought about who might be walking down there or driving down there. It could be on the receiving end of that iron bar. So I had a lot of fun with them. And, um, and that's, that's the fun part. 
the dark part is that when I was writing, when I started this novel, um, I very early on, I got to the scene where Asher arrives at the cathedral that he thinks is going to be a sanctuary for him. And it turns out it's been bombed. It's destroyed. And any woman talks to him there, um, the minor character, and then he goes to sleep. And I wrote that scene literally like he falls asleep. And the next day um, I had uh, some chest pains and I went into the hospital and I had a heart procedure that was unexpected. And I had a really good scare and I was not able to live on my own for a little over a month. And so I went and lived at my brother's house, which is only about 40 minutes away. And he's a physician. So it was a good, safe place. But it's because I couldn't I couldn't uh, take care of myself. And while I was lying down, I had this already. I, had, I spent a lot of that time lying there with ideas and like the book was taking shape in my mind. And I decided um, one of the things I would do when I went back to it is um, that I would put my death in this book. But to me, my death was not, because it was so sudden like that, the, the close call, um, it was not like the Grim Reaper with his scythe and cloak and hood. It was much more like a really strong, dumb guy. The sort of guy go, oh, oh knocked off the cliff, sorry. You know, and and that he would, it would be almost comical and that he was uh, had unlimited strength, didn't even know his own strength, um, but he possessed it. And he could kill anything at any time. And, um, and in fact, was ready to a couple of times in the novel. So I came back and I had him, I had Asher wake up and he can smell somebody's cooking chicken. And he could follow the scent because he's starving. And the first thing they say is kill him. We're going to kill him. And the last thing they say is, as long as he kept, keeps telling stories, I say we don't kill him. So and, that's your survival is the is the writing. Interesting. Wow. So we kind of are talking around it. So this the faith is like this huge theme in the novel. And you, you must know a lot about scripture because you had to sort of pick apart like what the Jewish bits are and the Christian bits. Um so you're writing about this this Jewish man because and you talk to us about how it's because Chagall had to hide his identity as well. Uh so what how how did that evolve like how did you incorporate your own feelings about faith and how did you incorporate them into this book and how, how did you write about them in a way that felt uh authentic uh great question you know um a piece of it is the necessity of christianity um in that you're talking about rebuilding windows and cathedrals so they're french catholics um and so um and there is there's church hierarchy that's involved in this and um, so that was that was kind of necessity. And then I had the dimension of um, Chagall's um, the hiding his religion, which makes sense. If somebody kills five million, if you know five million people of your faith are slaughtered, you know, in the greatest genocide in history ever by a mile, then you're going to be careful. You're going to be shy about it until you feel secure. And it's a great moment when he does sort of finally become secured himself. It was a great moment for me reading it. There are lots of subtler um, subtler ways that faith can be really helpful, like any other research, can be really helpful to a story. And I, I'm going to try and find a page while I'm talking to you and see if I can do it, which is, um, uh, let's see, which is probably not not a smart idea, but it's not good podcasting. But bear with me for one second, because I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost there. So in the Seder, um, 
which is the Passover Jewish celebration, um, there is a prayer, the Dayanu prayer. And, um, and that prayer is, um, you know, if all God had done was lead us out of slavery in Egypt, Dayanu, it would have been enough. If all God had done is part the Red Sea so that we could flee from the Pharaoh's army, Dayanu, it would have been enough. And, and so on. And then if, if all God had done is bring Moses to us, if all he had done was bring us to the promised land, Diana, right? So here is, um, so I want to read like, I don't know, about, about uh, two thirds of a page, if I may. Okay. This is first night at the Chateau. And um, uh, you know that, that Chagall often had animals flying through the air in his paintings and windows. You could see, you know, horses, cows, you think like gravity didn't really pertain in his world. So, um, so here we go. Um, as soon as he was alone, he went to the window. Moonlight spilled on the fields and the valley, a million contrasts in blue. Sheep bleated in the meadow, ewes calling their kids, while overhead bats darted and swooped. Then a cow lowed, long and loud, somewhere down the hill in the dark. When it moaned again, another cow moved from the middle of the fields. But the sounds confused Asher. Was the second one a reply or an echo off the, the ch chateau's stone facade, which ran three stories from his window to the grass below? Now both cows were singing and the echoes goading them on. Four bassoons, though he could not tell which were real and which were reverberation. The co combined sounds seemed to rise in the moonlit clouds, it was as if they were cows too, calling to their kindred below, hearing the, the response and repeating it, heaven and earth in bovine chorus, musical and strange. And Asher had to brace his frames against the his arms against the window frame to bear it. The song passed quickly, as beautifully as mercy. The song passed quickly, as beauty mercifully does, but left him marveling at the expanse of his day. Waking by the river, his stomach appeased by brothers, the brother's chicken would have been enough. Noticing the grapevines would have been enough. Seeing the lovely woman pass in her cart would have been enough. The tomato falling off the cart for him to eat and mourn would have been enough. A few francs in his pockets would have been enough. A bed, cheese for breakfast, peace in the valley, enough, enough, enough. And if I had not immersed in the Jewish faith and gone to a bunch of seders and learned the Dianu prayer, that passage wouldn't occur, that gratitude passage. And there are two other Dianu prayers in, in this book. And, and I ended up adapting that for myself. I love the idea of gratitude like that. It would have been enough. Instead, so much more. I got to research this book, would have been enough. This book got published, it would have been enough. I finally got to do an event with a Canadian audience. What a man enough. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So my next question is very much about this rebuilding. And I mean, it, it's a book about hope and trying to sort of rebuild a dark world, right? So I'm sure when you were writing it, you, you just come out, out of the pandemic, you said. So we had some darkness we're coming out of. Uh, we're sort of in a dark time again in many ways in the world. Um, yes. So maybe my question is, what what do you think the, the book is really trying to, what do you want people to take away from it? 
I'm not going to give away the ending. So just like the ending definitely has a very hopeful. Um, and and I when you say that you wanted to write sort of a, a parable or, or a fairy tale, there's definitely a lot of that feeling of like hope. So what do you want people to take away from having read your book? I don't I don't want people to take anything away from this book. I want them to experience the story and laugh and cry and maybe have a continue in their imagination after they read the last page. I want to tell one story from the research, though, that, that I think is about um, what my experience was with this. OK, I started out literally thinking this is a fairy tale. Can people actually be healed after a war this divisive? And um, can they work together? And how does this happen? And what are the ingredients? And I'm working away on this, and I've been at it for months. I guess by the time I went to France, I've been working on this book for, for 10 months. It was far along. And um, and really knew how the first draft was going to be shaped anyway, thinking it was a fairy tale. And then I got to, to Reims, and I got to the cathedral, and um, and this is where Marc Chagall's first windows are. And um, uh, so um, I, I had by that time could could have drawn you these windows. I looked at them so many times and the best book I could find. I got prints of them and I put them over the window in my writing room so I would see them like while I was working. I really had like internalized it. And maybe that's weird creative stuff, but it's just like, I want that. I want to feel that. And now I knew I was going to see them in the cathedral with God's light shining through them, you know, or whatever, whatever cause of that light is shining through them. And um, and I walked into this cathedral, as I say, it's expansive, incredible place. And I knew they were straight back behind the uh, the um, the altar, which is, you know, maybe it's 300 feet away. It's far. And and I, I wanted to like run right up the center aisle and see them. And then I felt like, look, it took me. It was not only was it hard to get there. I actually like the travel to get there was the disaster that travel can be sometimes. And I actually spent it spent a night in the Reykjavik airport which was unplanned it was just like it was an exertion okay so when i finally got there um i decided i'm not going to run up the middle i'm going to be cool and i'm just going to walk around the cathedral first and i go down the left hand side of this cathedral and there are these kind of poster boards that are mounted on the wall there and this is what they said um it, after the end of world war ii this cathedral was the first place that the officials of France sat down with the officials of Germany to begin rapprochement. And, um, and I talked to docents there and other people. I got different versions of the story, but I'm going to tell you the one I like best because I decided that's the one I want to believe. But it's, it's pretty close anyway. And it goes like this. They have a prayer and then they go to start it. And now all of the windows are boarded up. They've all been destroyed. And, um, and so they have to bring in all these extension cords for lamps, just so they can see and conduct their meeting there. And um, and there's rows of desks on either side with the center area cleared out, no pews or churches or anything. And so they have a prayer. And then right after it, the head of the German delegation says, uh, the people of Germany uh, would like the opportunity to speak first. And the the, the head of the French is like, no, monsieur, no. And, and he came around in front of the uh, desks and knelt down. And said the people of Germany begged the opportunity to speak first. And he said, you know, go ahead. And he said, this is the place where for the thousand years that France had a monarchy, this is the place that their kings were crowned. And it was known the world over for the amazing windows that it had here, where we see just plywood 
and boards over those openings now as a gesture of goodwill when there are going to need to be many, many, many gestures of goodwill. We invite the, the people of France to go find the greatest stained glass window makers on earth to replace the boards with the kind of genius on art that used to be here and, um, and it will be paid for by the people of Germany. Today, Germany and France have 280 miles of shared border. They use the same currency. You can cross that border without any permission or scrutiny. They, they are both part of a larger unified government. So by the time I walked back around to actually see Chagall's windows, I knew that it was real. I knew that it was possible. And so, yeah, it was a parable. Then it's like, wow, if Germany and France can reconcile, then, then who can't? And it's not to say it doesn't take enormous self-abnegation and it doesn't take enormous forgiveness and it doesn't take deep, deep generations of mourning. Absolutely. But it is possible. And I feel like, you know, you tell me how we're going to fix the Middle East. I have no idea. But I know that rebuilding it is going to require the same kind of generosity and humility and acceptance of responsibility and forgiveness. It's going to take those same things. So it ended up being, yeah, it's, it's it's a true story and it's also a parable. And that that was my pride in writing the stories, feeling like that's where it landed. Wow, that feels like the perfect place to end my questions. But I will open the floor up to our audience. If anyone wants to ask a question, just pop it in the chat. While we await that, um, I'd like to just sort of shift gears a little bit. You also, uh, besides being an author, you are also apparently a musician. You've recorded three CDs, including one entitled Man of Glass. Could you tell us about that, please? <laughs> well, that's kind of funny. Because, uh, yeah, that's, I, yeah, I've been playing the guitar since I was 10. And um, and now I'm I'm almost 40. <laughs> uh, or maybe a little older. And, and um, so I've played forever. And um pretty much all the time that I'm writing, there's a guitar leaning against my desk and there are instruments all over this house. Um, the only reason that there aren't instruments in the back under me now is because I'm in the warmest place in the house, which is not exactly great for instruments. If over here, you can see the wood stove that is keeping me very happy right now. So the guitars don't like, wooden instruments don't like, don't like fire so much. But um, uh, so, yeah, so I did that. And, um, and some time ago, uh, I, I guess it was about, 20 years ago, um, I was going through a divorce and I wrote a song called Woman of Stone, Man of Glass. And um, uh, that's as far as I went with it. It's an instrumental song. So there were no like angry ex-husband lyrics or any of that, but it's just a kind of expressive song. And and so, so the title of that album was, the producer's choice was Man of Glass. And, um, uh, and for a while, I thought maybe the title of this novel is Man of Glass. And then everyone said it sounded like a sci-fi story or like some post-apocalyptic thing and rather than the historical fiction. And so everyone's like, no, it's not going to be Man of Glass. And um, so then it was The Glass Chateau. And and But that, that's how that happened. Purely coincidental. I don't think I have a thing about glass, except that, you know, I have you know, a glass in my hand and there's glass in the windows here. And it's just interesting how, you know, you're wearing glasses right now. And I have my phone here, which has a glass cover. And we don't think about 
all the glass that is around us that we use all the time. And it all is, it's all just like sand and lime and some kind of organic material to make it, you know, fix. And uh, so one of the things that's fun in, in, I think in writing fiction is you can take something completely ordinary and, and, and just make, have the reader either notice it or see it in a new light. And so I never paid much attention to stained glass windows in a church. They all were kind of okay. Um, another book of mine, um, uh, Universal Two. There's a guy who builds church organs in it, and and I had never given a second thought to church organs until I was inside the guts of a huge one in cathedrals, and was like, oh, this is really interesting. So, um, yeah, so the, uh, that's the only connection between my fictional life and my musical life. Huh, that's funny. Total coincidence, and just kind of fell into place. So can you tell us about what you're working on now? You clearly immersed yourself fully into whatever book you're writing. Uh, what what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a book about people who are shy about asking questions. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you have any questions. I'm not seeing it. Um, what I'm working on now, uh, the very short version is to say that it is a cautionary tale. And it is uh, kind of a reinvestigation of the last two weeks of the life of the painter Jackson Pollock. And um, and uh, it's a lot about the perils of celebrity and celebrity worship. And um, uh, there is a woman that he was having an affair with at the end of his life. And his wife said, um, and she was like, Jackson, you're a genius, you're a genius, you're a genius, you're a genius. While Jackson's wife was saying, you can't have a drink until five o'clock. You have to finish your painting work for the day. And uh, he was 46. You'd think he would have been, well, anyway, whatever he would have been. Uh, he um, he tried to have both relationships and his wife said, I'm going to go away for two weeks while you figure it out. And she went away and the mistress moved in. And 12 days later, he was dead. And wow. then, then she took up, the same woman took up like two months later with William de Kooning, another painter of that time who left his wife to be with her. And eight months later, he was dead. And then she took a um, sharing space in a studio in New York with a, a painter named Franz, I forget his last name, who was, whose work I don't know. And shortly thereafter, he was dead. And that was the studio that she worked in for the rest of her life. And it's not a murder mystery. It's much more of a, she worships these men to death. And so it's a really intricate, really fun. It's going to be, there's going to be a lot of sex in this one. It's a very sexy story too. And which is fun and um, and requires a lot of care. Uh, but anyway, that's the next project. And I'm very early in it. So who knows what it'll actually, it'll end up being about school buses. I mean, you, know, you never know how things evolve, but that's where it is for now. Oh, we have anonymous attendee. Yes, I think they they've missed they missed the beginning. Perhaps they're asking about the connection between Asher and Shagal. You've missed the beginning, anonymous attendee. Um, I don't know if we want to answer this one, or if they want to come and watch this video afterwards because we've sort of answered it well, already. You know, the short answer is that um, uh, this character is not Chagall. Chagall was born in Belarus. And he came to, um, you know, he worked in Moscow and then he worked in Belarus for a long time. And then he came to uh, to France uh, once to live for a little while and then came back later when he was married to stay um, post-war. And um, and Asher is a lifelong uh, Frenchman. Um, and there are a couple of things that he borrows from um, 
Uh, there are a couple of things that he borrows from Chagall and some of the artwork that appears in this, the drawings and the imaginings that he has and some of the windows they make, um, uh, <clears throat> they come from Chagall. There's one time when Chagall is sort of doing an emotional, a mental goodbye to Marie. And he describes her as swinging from the trapeze that is her life. And what he describes is, is a, a, exactly a painting of Chagall's. And uh, so I do have that kind of fun with it. Um, but uh, but he's his own person. And I didn't want to do a bio about Chagall anyway. Um, that's been done. Um, it was more about the kind of the idea of the art and of the art of window, which requires lots of people. So I think that's all the time we have today. Thank you so, so much for coming and speaking to me today. Um, we look forward to your next work. It definitely, when you started describing it, sounded like a murder mystery. And I was like, is she just going around murdering these uh, inspirations? Yeah, she does. And she just loves them to death. So, you know, in the case of Jackson Pollock, she just says, go ahead and have a drink. Go ahead and have a drink. And then he's driving. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but thanks. And then I do have one in the works that is maybe the book after that. And some of it takes place in Southern Canada with a plane full of Vermonters that goes down just over the border during a really severe winter storm and um and so uh uh that one's that one's written but needs work and so i think it's not going to be next but there's 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 a canadian book to come uh, because the rcmp is so good at finding people who are lost that i have to tell that story <laughs> yeah um thanks so much for having me um thanks to your library and all libraries and uh and to harper collins canada for helping this to happen too Thank you so much. We'll see you again, hopefully, with your next book. Okay, great. Bye. Bye.